You can turn to 1 Corinthians 12 if you would like. And uh, as you get there, I'm going to share another way I think that was kind of a cute story that I found today about a, a child in a Hebrew school that after his instructor had gotten done, the instructor, as was normally the case after his lessons, would ask the students if they had any questions. Now, these are young children. It's an elementary-level school. And um, little Joey in the class said, Mr. Goldblatt, there's something I can't figure out. Well, what's that, Joey? asked the instructor. Well, according to the Bible, the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, right? Right. And the children of Israel beat up the Philistines, right? Right. And the children of Israel built the temple, right? Ah, and the children of Israel fought the Egyptians. Children of Israel fought the Romans. The children of Israel were always doing something important, weren't they, Mr. Goldblatt? Ah, that is right, too, he said. So what's your question, Joey? Well, what I want to know, Joey said, what was all the grown-ups doing? I mean... Here's the innocence of a child looking at the scriptures and thinking it was really actually the children. Now, certainly God could have done that, couldn't he? And that's even the faith of a child, isn't it? The faith of a child could see himself with other children his age, literally taking on all of those world powers and being successful in doing so. But that's kind of the interesting thing about the human mind. We arrive at different conclusions sometimes maybe than we should. You know, the human mind is almost like, if you will, the most powerful search engine on the planet. You know, we typically think about Google and Yahoo and those things for search engines. But the mind is even faster than they are. And you can type in to Google or one of those search engines a place like New York City, and your mind will come up with information that you have stored and maybe an image that you have stored even faster than the search engine will. Literally, as you've typed that out, your mind has already come up with something before the search engine has. For example, when I mentioned the name New York City, what came to your mind? A lot of people think of the World Trade Center. I think of that because I was there right afterwards. Um, Certainly, we think of a very cosmopolitan culture. Uh, We think of a lot of different people, a melting pot, if you will. What about the name Las Vegas? And I am talking about Nevada, not New Mexico, for clarification. (laughs) But what comes to mind when you think about Las Vegas, Nevada? We think of gambling. We might think of some of the sexual immorality in the city. Maybe on the lighter side, we would think of some of the incredible architecture and the buildings that they've built there. But we all have images that instantaneously come out of this search engine called our mind and give us this particular thought of what things are like. Well, here's one more. What comes to mind when we think of the name Corinth? You know, it's interesting. uh, My wife and I and some others were actually in Corinth um, a few months ago. And it was kind of interesting, as it always is, to put some actual pictures together with what you've kind of dreamed up or imagined in your own mind. And so I have some clearer pictures of what Corinth is actually like today. But it's interesting, at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, which was around, they say, about 56, 57 A.D., it was a very different place. It was a place actually not unlike our New York City and our Las Vegas in terms of its cosmopolitan nature. It was a port city. 
There was a lot of what? Sexual immorality. There was a lot of issues. This was a melting pot place, this place called Corinth. Corinth is a city actually sits on a small stretch of land in between the main continental part of Greece and a little peninsula that sticks out there. And it separates two gulfs. And there's some dangerous water down around that peninsula. So it was pretty common also to avoid the longer distance that they would load off the cargo and they would move it across that stretch of land right through Corinth. And so it was a major trade area in that particular respect. So it's interesting as we start to look at this passage to realize that this was a significant place for the early church especially. In fact, it was a significant place for the Roman Empire. It was considered a hub of their commerce. And even to this day in Corinth, it's actually a large part of the industry. It's not a very large town. It's less than 50,000 people today. But it still plays a very significant role in that part of the world. In fact, the Greek name Corinthus means ornament. It was, in fact, considered somewhat of a jewel, if you will, of that area. But their immoral reputation was probably more publicized and maybe more well-known to us as Christians than the other sides of what they did. In fact, just to share this with you, in classical Greek literature, there was a commonly used word that they would toss in there that literally translated meant to behave like a Corinthian. In other words, even back in those days, they had an image that would come to the mind, not unlike an image that comes to our mind when we think Las Vegas. You know, most of us have seen the commercial for Vegas, right? Hey, what what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? And so we all have these images that come in. And that was true even in their culture as they would read their own literature. In fact, one person described Corinth as a seaman's paradise, a drunkard's heaven, and a virtuous woman's hell. That's the kind of place that we're talking to. And so Paul writes this letter, not to the city, of course, but to the church. And I think it's important to take a look at his greeting there. Actually, in chapter 1, I'll read it to you in verse 2. It says, We are writing to the church of God in Corinth. And you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by the means of Christ Jesus, just as he did all Christians everywhere. As we look at this tonight, you're going to see that this epistle is a classic example of the problems and the trials that all sinners, all of us face in the process of sanctification and growing to be who God's called us to be. And I think it also shows the timelessness of Scripture. Because the issues, think about some of the issues that Paul deals with in this letter. Not too unlike issues that we deal with even in the church today. Factions, believers that sue one another, sexual immorality, marriage and divorce, roles, responsibilities, what they are in the church. Those are all issues that we still work through in the church today. But as we uh, take a look at it tonight, we're not going to get into those issues as much as we're going to look at the light that God placed in that dark place. In fact, the title of the message tonight, for those of you that are taking notes, is Who Are We? So let's go before the Lord. Father, we come in the name of Jesus tonight to uh, study your word and really to hear from you, Lord. I pray more than anything else that 
that's what would happen, that you would uh, speak through me the truth of your scriptures and help us to realize, Lord, something that you wrote literally almost 2,000 years ago is just as applicable to us today as it was to this church in that day. And, Lord, may we recognize that this is a part of the sanctification process that we're all going through right now. And there's a lot that we can learn from our brothers and sisters in this church. And all of God's people, of course, in agreement said, Amen. Well, let's take a look. 1 Corinthians 12. Here's another word I want to throw out at you. Church. What's the image that comes to your mind when you hear that word? If you grew up in a church, not this church, you might think of stained glass windows, right? There might be a lot of those kinds of images, those tall steeples that we see out there. Of course, if you've been in Calvary Chapel most of your life, you think of a strip mall or an old soccer field or a warehouse somewhere because that's where Calvaries tend to locate. You might even think maybe it's a place where like-minded people come to worship or to study the Word of God. So when you hear the word church, there's a few different images you may come up with. But one of the things I'll encourage you to do tonight is if you'll take a look at the nearly 150 references to the word church in the New Testament, you're going to discover answers very different than the ones that I just gave you. And that's what we're going to take a look at in this passage. Uh, I want to take you, first of all, to verse 4 in chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. Now, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but it's the same Holy Spirit who is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service in the church, but it's the same Lord we are serving. There are different ways that God works in our lives, but it's the same God who does the work through all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us as a means of helping the entire church. Let's take a look at part of what's talked about there. First of all, different kinds of spiritual gifts. There's nine gifts actually mentioned in this chapter. There's other gifts mentioned in uh, Romans chapter 12. And there's other gifts mentioned in 1 Peter. I'm not really going to speak about the gifts, although if you have an interest, we actually did that during the Deeper Walk series a couple of months ago, so you can refer to that. But moving on from there, it says there's different kinds of service in the church. The New King James, if you have that with you tonight, translates this word that I read, service, as ministries. And frankly, think about it. In order to have ministries, you have to have people who are ministers, right? Kind of hard to have ministries if you don't have ministers or people to minister to. Pastors are normally associated as ministers. They lead us, they teach us, they counsel us. But it takes more than teachers and counselors and leaders to be a church. You need a lot of others, don't you? You've got to have people that take out the trash. That doesn't sound nearly as exciting as leading and counseling and teaching, right? But those people have to exist. There have to be people that clean toilets, believe it or not. Because we do use those things around here, don't we? Oh, come on, admit it. We have to have people that answer the phone, paint the walls, do the repairs, the things that have to be done here around the church, pay the bills even. You also need ministers to help out with traffic, ushers who help you find a seat, greeters to assist the visitors, children's workers, musicians, singers, just to name a few. 
You know, Shannon was talking about our awesome uh, worship team, and I totally agree with her, and I'm sure you do too. But, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes for me, I've heard the songs first from them, and later I'll hear it on the radio or I'll hear it actually on the CD, and virtually every time I always think, I like the way our band does it better. (laughs) Don't you? I mean, it's just, just incredible. This passage goes on and it says there's different ways that God works in our lives. Think about some of them. Some people have a passion for feeding the homeless. Other people visit the sick, comfort the elderly. People going to jails, missionaries sent out to foreign countries. Frankly, my list could go on and on, but suffice it to say that there's different kinds of gifts, various kinds of service, where everyone is allowing God to work in differing ways to be the church. That's significant. In my 10-plus years on staff here at the church, I would have to tell you this is one of the most common misconceptions that I run across. It's a misconception that I commonly refer to as the priesthood of all pastors. Now, you guys know where it teaches that in the Scriptures, right? Where? Uh, It doesn't. It doesn't teach the priesthood of all pastors in the Scriptures. Some of you know it teaches the priesthood of what? All believers. What Scripture bears out for us is it's the believers that are called to do the work of the ministry. In fact, just to share a short passage with you out of 1 Peter, you can turn there if you'd like, but it's uh, in chapter 2. Peter writes, And now God is building you, speaking to the believers, as living stones in His spiritual temple. What's more, you are God's holy priests who offer the spiritual sacrifices that please Him because of Jesus Christ. A few verses down it says, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a kingdom of priests, God's holy nation, His very own possession. This is so you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. We all know the little children's song, right? This little light of mine. I won't sing it for you, but you got the idea, right? We're called to be a light out into the darkness to show what? God's goodness. And if we're not doing that collectively as the church, as its ministers, then the light doesn't go out any further maybe than this building. We're called to be the light. We're called to be the priests, each and every one of us. In fact, back in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 7, another purpose that's outlined for us besides showing the goodness of God, a spiritual gift is given to each of us as a means of helping the entire church. It's teamwork. It's a collective effort that takes place. It's not done by a select few. And I believe God did that with great intent. I want to skip down the verses to verse 12. It says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we've all been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit, and we've all received the same spirit. Wow, that's a great little passage right there, those two verses. Many parts, but one body. In fact, you may or may not know that this is Paul's first use of the analogy of the church being the body of Christ. Think about it. 
Once we place our faith in Christ, once we become born again, we become a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. In essence, we become family. And so when we invite a family member or a friend to church, are we inviting them to a building on 4,001 soon? Is that what we want them to be a part of? I don't think it is. I think what we're inviting them to, if you really think about it, is we're inviting them to be a member of the family, potentially. We're hoping that they'll like the rest of the family that they are exposed to, right? They'll like what the family does when it comes together and become a member of that community of believers, ultimately. Just like the human body, there are many parts, aren't there? But there has to be unity and for the body to be healthy, for it to function properly together. Any of us that are um, starting to get up in the years a little bit, as I seem to, I don't really want to admit it, but I am, um, we quickly notice how sometimes one thing affects other things. You know, on Monday I was goofing around with some younger guys and uh, pulled a hamstring playing ultimate football, if you know what that is. And uh, was quickly told by one of the younger guys, well, yep, you probably ought to just sit out because it's only going to get worse. Well, the last thing an old guy wants to hear from a young guy is that he just ought to sit out. Okay? And so uh, naturally, being the studly man that I am, I stayed in there. And shortly after that, I pulled my calf muscle on top of my hamstring. Later in the day, limping around in bare feet, stepped on a rock on the back of my heel and just wanted to cut my whole leg off later that night. Because it's amazing how one part, when you're having trouble with it, just affects the entire rest of the body. And so it is even in the body of Christ as well. Being spiritually healthy, though, is very similar to being physically healthy. And this is something I want you to catch tonight. If I went to a doctor and said, Doctor, I'm trying to become more healthy. There's two things that almost any doctor and nutritionist would tell me to do. Two basic things, right? What are they? Eat right and exercise. Well, you know what? Think about that in the context of our spiritual health. What is eating right? Hopefully, it's like right now. It's when we study the Word, when we're taught the Word, we get fed, right? It's part of the reason, hopefully, most of you came tonight, was to be fed, to hear what God had to say to you in your personal life. But it's not all just about eating, is it? We have to eat right. And this is a fellowship that, in my experience over the years, has eaten well. In fact, I would go as far to say that we've had gourmet-quality food that's been dispersed to us, right? Well, what happens if you eat rich food and don't get any exercise? You get fat, right? Which is not good. It's not healthy. And the reality is one of the purposes of being fed in the body is so that we can go out and get the exercise, which is doing the work of the ministry doing the things that God would have us do as the church. 1 Timothy 4 puts it this way, verse 7, if you want to make a reference. Spend your time and energy in training yourself for spiritual fitness. It's interesting what Paul says here. Physical exercise has some value. But spiritual exercise is much more important, for it promises a reward both in this life 
and the next. That's very important for us to catch on to. Let me expound on this idea. Let's say that you're one of those gym rats. And I know there's probably a few of you here, okay? And every day you spend a few hours exercising. And you are Mr. or Mrs. Olympia, okay? You have the above perfect bod. What happens to that perfect bod when you die? It either goes up in flames or it gets put in a box and rots in the ground. To state the obvious, you can't take it with you, can you? And I'm, quite frankly, thankful for that personally. Okay. But the beauty of spiritual exercise is you can take it with you. And it's not just then that we're going to reap the rewards. Catch what Paul says here. We're going to reap the rewards in this life and the next. Has your spiritual exercise benefited you, blessed you? Anybody who's ever done the work of the ministry has got to say amen to that. Do I have any amens out there? The spiritual exercise? Absolutely. It's a blessing to be used by God in other people's lives, regardless of what that work of ministry might happen to be. So we get rewarded right here and right now, but it's going to pay off even more for us later. Albert Pine said, what we do for ourselves dies with us. What we do for others is immortal. Interesting, isn't it? What we do for others is immortal. Going on to um, verse 14 in this passage. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm only an ear and not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? Suppose the whole body were an eye, then how would you hear? Or if your whole body were just one big ear, how could you smell anything? But God made our bodies with many parts, and he's put each part, catch this, just where he wants it. Maybe not necessarily where you want it, but where he wants it. What a strange thing a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some of the parts that seem weakest and least important are really the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect from the eyes of others those parts that should not be seen, while other parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together in such a way that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members, underline this, all the members care for each other equally. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. One thing that's important to state here is that unity in the body doesn't mean uniformity. Aren't you glad we're not all the same? You know, I, I get a little miffed when I see that somebody else has the same shirt that I do. In fact, Ed, I have that same shirt. I just have to tell you. Okay? You know, because I want to be unique. Okay? Now, I know other people shop at Costco. I hate to give out that public information. But I just somehow I want to be unique. And I want to hope the people that I associate with don't 
buy the same clothes at the same places that I do. I think that's just human nature. We want to be like that. Well, in the body of Christ, I am. No one has the exact same gifting that I have and the life experience together with it. That is truly unique, as unique as my fingerprints are. And the same is true for you. In fact, our diversity, if you think about it, is essential to our unity. In marriage, it's two becoming one. But as the old proverb says, if two people in marriage are always in agreement, one of them is not thinking. Took a while for you married people to catch on to that. (laughs) But that's true. I mean, it takes uniquenesses in our relationships with each other so that we complete, so that we complement each other. God has put each part just where He wants it. Isn't that great to know? That God has shaped you in a very specific way for the perfect fit in the perfect place in the body of Christ. That's awesome. In fact, I'll share an acronym that some of you may have heard called SHAPE. S stands for spiritual gifts, the mix that God has given you. HEART is the H, a passion that you have, maybe unique from other people. Maybe you have a a passion for the homeless. Maybe you have a passion for the elderly. Maybe you have a passion for the children. But that's something that God's given you. You have abilities that through your life you've developed. God's given you a unique personality. Maybe not everybody else appreciates your unique personality, (laughs) but God does because He gave it to you. Maybe you're one of those people that do better with tasks, but you don't really work well and play well with others. (laughs) That's what my teacher used to always write on my report card when I was a kid. I guess I did better just with tasks than I did with people. Wouldn't she be surprised to see me today? Okay. But the reality is we also have experience, life experiences. Our successes, our failures, our hurts, our pains, spiritual and personal. I love what this passage says here too. It says, the parts that seem weakest and least important are what? The most necessary. Never undervalue your role or worth in the body of Christ. Because doing so undervalues the God who gifted and placed you in his body. Remember verse 6? It's the same God who does the work through us. It's very important. Regardless of the role that you have in the body of Christ, it's the same God who does the work. So it's equally important. In fact, can I let you in on what seems to be a secret? Pastors aren't nearly as important as many people think we are, or in some cases as we think we are, okay? We really aren't. We're just one of the people in the body of Christ, pastors, that's doing the role, the job, the ministry that God's called us to. That's all a pastor really is. In general, I find that Christians tend to overemphasize that role, though, and kind of lift it up above the other roles in the church. But let's look at a simple definition for this role of a pastor from Scripture. Ephesians 4, 
verse 11 and 12. He, he of course referring to God, specifically the Holy Spirit in this context, is the one who gave these gifts to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Kind of exciting, isn't it? Let me give you a working definition for this idea of the work of the ministry we talk about. Let me give you a definition for that. Using your God-given gifts, talents, and abilities to serve Him and to serve others. That's the work of the ministry. And it can take a lot of different forms. But that's the work of the ministry. You know, often I get this question from visitors to the church. They'll say, hey, how many uh, ministers does your church have? I've started telling them the truth. And here's what I say. I say, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's somewhere between 8 and 10,000. Because really, potentially, that's true. We potentially have eight to 10,000 ministers here at the church. Because I think if you read this passage closely, it might, might be better to call us as pastors administrators. Because it's the people, God's people, who are ministering, doing the work of the ministry. Pastorally, we're equipping, we're guiding, we're leading them towards that end. Sadly, in the church today, though, all across America, not just here, 80% of our ministers are in retirement. And by that, I don't mean they're old. You know, I'm asked from time to time about uh, a need in the ministry. In fact, often, you know, somebody's come to me because maybe a, a class was closed in the children's ministry. And they ask, well, what is the church... Are you as the pastor going to do about that? Well, I take them to Jesus' words in Matthew 9, where he said, The harvest is so great, but the workers are so few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send out more workers. Because that's the answer to that situation. Do you realize that at this church, there's 300-plus people that serve just in the children's ministry? 300-plus. That's a huge number. And yet we still have a greater need because we have a large number of kids. But that's true of other ministries as well. Talk to the guy that heads up traffic or security or ushers or hospitality or the jail ministry, whatever it would be. Every single one of those leaders almost completely would say, absolutely, we could use help. We would love for you to be a part of what God is doing in our ministry at the church. And that's the key. That's the key for all of us is that we would pray to the Lord of the harvest about it. Now, when I tell them that, I tell them I'm praying. And you know what I ask them to do? Pray with me. Pray with me that God would answer that prayer. And you know, it's kind of interesting when you pray for things sometimes. God gives you an unusual answer, doesn't he? Because sometimes the answer is you. Not always the answer we're looking for, right? But it is the answer that sometimes God gives us. John MacArthur said this. He said, a Christian without a ministry 
is a contradiction. Interesting statement. Kind of finishing up this passage, it says, One part, if honored, all the parts are glad. You know, it's common in ministry, just like it is in team sports, that one or two people tend to get the publicity ended. You know, in football, it's usually the quarterback or a wide receiver or a running back that gets the publicity. Almost never a what? Almost never a lineman. In ministry, it's usually the pastor. Very rarely a faithful prayer warrior behind the scenes or maybe a dedicated nursery worker changing diapers. Very rarely do they get the publicity. But their work is equally important. You know, in sports, a wise coach is going to give credit to the who? For a victory. Who's he going to give credit to? He's going to give it to the team. In ministry, a wise pastor gives credit to the body because it's the body of Christ working together as a team that causes it to come together. In fact, one of the best definitions I've seen of a pastor is the idea of a player coach. Being out on the field just with the rest of the team, but kind of helping to guide and direct what's going on out there. Ministry, like football, is a team effort. And frankly, just like football can be done no other way. You could take it and put the best NFL quarterback on the field by himself against any opposing team. Take the worst team in the league. I won't give you any names so we don't offend anybody. But take the best quarterback, take the worst team in the NFL. That quarterback doesn't have a prayer unless he's got those ten other guys out there on the field with him, right? It's totally a team effort. Think about it in terms of ministry. If there weren't traffic attendants out there on Sunday, that parking lot's chaotic already. Imagine how much more chaos there would be without some people guiding people in and out. That's a huge blessing to our ministry, and so we so rarely recognize the value that it has. What about when people are coming in and seats have kind of already started being taken on Sunday, and if it weren't for an usher that would kind of give you the, you know, the plus two, four thing that they do, you might have a hard time finding a seat. You might get frustrated and what? Just walk out, leave. If it wasn't for faithful children's ministry workers right now on the other side of this building, this service would have sounded a lot different tonight. In fact, some of you don't know, I actually call this the wailing wall right there, okay? Because if you stick your ear to it, you'll hear the wailing, okay? Because it's just on the other side. A ship captain and his chief engineer were having an argument And the nature of the argument was to determine who was the most important on board ship. To settle the argument, they decided to trade places for the day. The engineer went to the bridge. The captain went to the engine room. Several hours later, the captain appeared back with the engineer, covered in oil and grease. And he yelled at the chief engineer, holding a wrench. He said, you've got to get down there. I can't make her go. And the engineer said, well, of course, she's run aground. (laughs) See, each person knew what their particular part was. And when they traded places, had a negative effect on the ship. Verse 27, as we close here this evening. Now all of you together are Christ's body. 
Each one of you. Each one of you. Every person in this room, every person that considers this their church home, is a separate and necessary part of it. All together we are Christ's body. So here's the real point tonight. Church isn't a building. It's not a social agency. It's not a community center where you come to get married or buried. And no, it's not the same. It's not a religious social club. (laughs) Frankly, catch this. It's not a what at all. Church is not a what at all. Who are we? We are the church. Church isn't a what, it's a who. If you look at all of those references in the New Testament, you're going to see that it refers to a community of believers, a family. It refers to people. You know, when people attack my family, I stand up because it's my family. When people attack the church or slander the church, I stand up because it's my family. You know, people sometimes talk about Calvary this or Calvary that. But the reality, you know what they're talking about? Alan's family, your family. Do you recognize that? It's not a building on Osuna Road. It's our family that's being talked about there. And even more importantly, they're talking about the head of our family. And the head of the body of Christ is Jesus. Jesus stood for me. I'm going to stand for him. And I would challenge you to do the same. Today I want... Amen. Got a little homework for you tonight. Tonight I want you to go home, take a good look in the mirror. Ask yourself this question. Am I in shape? Now I don't mean physically, okay? (laughs) Don't go there. I mean spiritually. Are you getting the spiritual exercise that God has called you to? Are you fulfilling your role, your responsibility in the body, in the family? If you're not by some chance, then decide to do something about it. Your family, your church, we need you. Because it takes all of us together to do church. I hope you realize that. It's not about one person standing up here or a group of people out there. It's about the entire body coming together. Many of you have gifts that I have none of. I might have a gift that you might not have. But it's all of us coming together using those gifts that causes us to be the force, the light into the world that God has called us to be. I'm going to give you four steps real quickly for getting into shape. First step you've got to take, dedicate your body. Think of Romans 12. When you think of all that God has done for you, verse 2, is it too much to ask that you would be a what? A living and holy sacrifice. Step two, stop making excuses. You know, God gives every single one of us 168 hours in the week. Most of us sleep off about 56 of that. Some of us work off another 40 of that. But roughly, believe it or not, do the math, there's about 72 hours left over after you sleep and you work. And I know there's other parts to your life, 
but recognize we have a lot of extra time on our hands. Every one of us does. And it's how we manage that, the kind of stewardship of that, I think, that God's interested in. Third step, commit to excellence. The Bible says that I would do all things as unto the Lord. So regardless of where you serve, whether you're a pastor and you teach or you lead or you guide or whether you counsel or whether you usher or lead traffic, do it as unto the Lord. Lastly, anticipate the blessing. Because God's got one for you. If you've never ventured out in faith in that way, you will be absolutely amazed at what God's going to do in your life by involving you in the work of the ministry, by being an active member in the body of Christ. I'm going to share a thought and then I'm going to pray. I found this. uh, The author's name is Summer Waters. Ironically, after you hear this, you'll be surprised, but I'm going to tell you up front, she's only 11 years old, and this is what she writes. She entitled this, I See Jesus. Summer writes, I saw Jesus last week. He was wearing blue jeans and an old shirt. He was up at the church building. He was alone and working hard. For just a minute, he looked like a little one, like one of our members, but it was Jesus I could tell by his smile. I saw Jesus last Sunday. He was teaching a Sunday school class. He didn't talk real loud or use long words, but you could tell he believed what he said. For just a minute, he looked like one, my, one of my Sunday school teachers. But it was Jesus. I could tell by his loving voice. I saw Jesus yesterday. He was at the hospital visiting a friend who was sick. They prayed together quietly. For just a minute, it looked like Bobby's dad. But it was Jesus I could tell by the tears in his eyes. I saw Jesus this morning. He was in my kitchen making my breakfast and fixing me a special lunch. For just a minute, it looked like my mom. But it was Jesus I could feel the love from his heart. I see Jesus everywhere, taking food to the sick, welcoming others to his home, being friendly to a newcomer, and for just a minute... I think he's someone I know. But it's always Jesus I can tell by the way he serves. Father, we uh, come together as your family, the body of Christ. And we acknowledge, Lord, that uh, we are privileged to have the place that we have in the family. Lord, I recognize there might even be some here tonight that uh, are not maybe yet a part of the family. They've not made a decision to join, as it were. But, Father, I pray if that's the case that their hearts would be touched tonight and after the service would come forward and ask, how do I join? Not how do I join this church, be a member that meets here at this building, but, Lord, how do I become a part of the body of Christ? Father, for those of us who have already made that decision, we're members. We're regulars. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts about the place, the role, the responsibility the privilege that we have to serve you, to be a part of the work that you're doing. I pray, Lord God, that tonight you would touch hearts. There would maybe be here people that have not ventured out in faith like that. They've been regular in their attendance, you know, at church, but they recognize through the teaching of your word tonight a need to further involve themselves in the work of the ministry. Lord, I know we're going to be blessed by their being a part of it, But, Father, help them to see how they will, too, be blessed. Lord, we just pray that it glorifies you and honors you 
We thank you for being with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.